Okay, good to be here this morning. I, uh, I love to study the Bible. I love to read books about the Bible. And so I'm always thinking. I'm always making notes. And I, some of those, many of those turn into articles that I put on my website, on my blog site, or turn into a book some way. But sometimes I have something on my heart that I just need to share with an audience. Especially this audience, which, which happens to be my home uh, region of the Dallas Church. So I did have a couple of things in mind. A two-part lesson, actually, this week and next week, right. unless I get thrown out after this week. <laughs> I always wonder about those two-part series. Things can happen. But Derek, so far, has promised me that I can have next week, too. Yes, but I do have some things that I want to share with you that have been weighing on me, actually, for a good while. I was thinking a lot about different things, praying a lot about them, and then I think Tom Brown's visit uh, helped solidify some things because he was the guy most responsible way back in the day for getting me into this movement of churches. And there were some things about his life, about what he shared that got me thinking a lot. And so the title of the lesson, as you can see, is We Must Live As Jesus Did. Now, I know it's a good title because it's a direct quote from a verse in the Bible. So I know it's a really good title. There's an old hymn that has this, uh, that asks the question, why did my Savior come to earth? Well, that's a very good question, don't you think? Uh, I can come up with at least three fundamental things that we have to understand. What would you say are the most important things about why Jesus came? Okay, so he can say the loss. That is a verse in Luke 19. Okay, what else? Serve, okay. Pardon? Show us how to live by his example, which the title suggests. What else? Okay, live life to the full, fulfill prophecies. Okay, a lot of good answers. But the three things I wrote down that are fundamental is die for our sins. That's pretty fundamental, right? And then to reveal God to us because we really could not understand God fully uh, until we saw Him in the flesh and that's who Jesus was. I don't know about you, but when I read the Old Testament, I get kind of schizophrenic. I read one side and I think, gee, God is harsh. And then I read another side and I think, wow, He is so full of grace. And and I bounce around both ways. But Jesus came and sort of settled it. He showed us the blend. He showed us the balance. He showed uh, showed us what God was really like. And then to show us how to live our lives. And someone already said that. And that is the title. This one is stated in 1 John 2. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now notice that he says must. He's not talking about a good idea or an optional idea. He says whoever claims to be in Jesus, to have a relationship with him, to be saved, needs to walk as Jesus walked. There's no double standard. Most religious people in this society 
really think there's a double standard. There's a standard for ministry type people and other committed weirdos. And then there's the safety net that catches everybody else that ever said Jesus. That's about what it boils down to, honestly, in a lot of religious settings in this particular society. Different matter altogether in Cambodia. That is not their problem. They got a whole another problem. But at any rate, that's what we see. But Jesus is saying, must. If we claim to be a Christian, we've got to follow him and follow him carefully. Why is that so important? Here are two verses. I've always been sort of mesmerized by the concept, but really encouraged. In Colossians 2.9, speaking of Jesus, it says that all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And so before Jesus came, we really couldn't know God that well. As I say, you get uh, a lot of interesting things said about him in the Old Testament, but to really understand the nature of God as it relates to his desire to have a relationship with you and me, that's what we see in Christ. He is the fullness, the pleroma, the fullness of Christ. He demonstrates Christ. He reveals Christ. And there are many verses that say that. Ephesians 1, though, is where it starts getting interesting to me when you get down to the human element. It says, And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, His spiritual body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. And so the same word is used. And so just like Jesus had to reveal God so that people could understand Him, the church is designed to be the spiritual body of Christ and reveal Him to the world. And so unless people see us, see Jesus in us, in flesh and blood, they're not going to really grasp it. Not even just reading the Bible. God didn't just drop the Bible out of heaven with a black nice cover and gold edges and say read it. It's not a do-it-yourself project. It is designed for us to reveal Jesus in our lives. And as we study the Bible with people, they are reading two things at once. They are reading the written word and they are reading the word that we are living. And they are asking the question, is this real or not? How about this dude? Does he walk the walk? And I know a lot of people that have been turned totally off by what they didn't see as well as what they did see. But I've also seen people turn on by simply seeing Jesus in people and it being real. People can tell. People aren't stupid. What God is asking of us is to represent Jesus to the world. To do what He would do if He were back in a physical body. He's saying that we in the spiritual body are taking His place. We are representing Him. And so we demonstrate what Jesus is and He's love, right? We demonstrate love to a world that doesn't know love. I love to put Jesus' name in 1 Corinthians 13. That's a great passage. We use it for weddings and all such things as that. It wasn't written for weddings, by the way. It was written in a different context. But it works well for weddings. But it especially does reveal Jesus. Jesus is patient. And keep in mind as we read these, this is what God is saying we each individually are to be. Jesus is patient. 
Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Now, does that describe you? Does that describe me? That's my responsibility as a disciple to have that describing me because people won't see Jesus if they don't see that in us. Right? Okay. Now, how was the love demonstrated in his ministry? That's the question. He loved every person, everyone. And he loved the whole person. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Right? So, spiritually, many passages. Some of you already quoted Luke 19.10. He came to seek and to save the lost. We know that Jesus was concerned about people being right with God. Okay? Physically, look at all the types of healings that he did. He raised the dead on several occasions. And so I know he was very concerned about people physically. Uh, He, you know, he created some bread and fish for people to feed them. He was always concerned about people physically. Emotionally, he wept when others wept. He was carried away with compassion for those who were hurting in any way. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever. I love the passage in Matthew 4 as well as Matthew 9. Both of these say essentially the same thing. Jesus went through all their towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I put the word compassion there in italics and in yellow because it comes from a long Greek word, splenizomai. That word is a word describing God and Jesus and never a human. It is such a strong word for compassion, it's never used of a human. But it is used of the one we are to imitate. You've heard the old saying, my heart went out to him. This, that's a pretty good idea of what this passage means. It means literally to have your inside so taken with somebody else's need that it's almost like your insides go out of your body. It's a very amazing word for divine compassion. And this is what I call the gospel triad in this passage. Preaching, teaching, and healing. Pretty well sums it all up. You see, Jesus came to minister to the whole person, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, right? But the question is, which was the most important? Now, if we just look at those three things, we can say, well, it's, you know, they're all equally important. And if that's true, then you could have the choice of which one you want to major in, right? Maybe you're one of these guys that wants to take care of people physically, so that's your deal. And somebody else says, no, I want to take care of them emotionally. A lot of hurting people emotionally, and so that's your deal. And somebody else says, no, I'd like to help people get to heaven, and that's your deal. 
Well, that's not quite how it works. I'm glad that we are taking care of physical needs. I've been to Cambodia. I've seen the hospitals. I've seen the people lined up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get into the hospital to get treated. I've been to places where people have all kinds of physical problems. And I'm glad that we do help through hope and other things uh, those that are much, much less fortunate than we are. Uh, I don't send money monthly to the children of Cambodia, but Teresa and I do have deducted out of our bank account money every month to send to some children in a program in Africa that Mark Ottenweller put us on to. Uh, it hurts me. Somebody, I think it's probably you, Will, somebody showed a, a, a video up here one time and it showed us these kids in Africa and I just couldn't get it out of my mind until I called Mark and got in touch with him and figured out how, where, where can we give some money that will make a difference with these little kids that are in such dire shape. I'm glad that we're doing what we're doing. I believe in it. I'm a hope supporter. Emotional needs. We've got a lot of programs that help people with emotional needs. Even on Disciples Today, now there's a, there is a counseling uh, side of that, a counseling program where people can get some help with their emotional needs. I know many former ministry people that have gone back to school and gotten trained to be counselors. There was a time when you couldn't hardly find a counselor in our group of churches. Now, there's not a problem with that one. We've got a lot of people going into that. And uh, our heart goes out to people that are hurting emotionally, maybe more than any other group. You can see someone and be around them just a little bit, and unless you talk with them, you don't know where they are spiritually. They may look just fine. You really don't know where they are, even on a physical level, whether they've got a disease or whether they're totally healthy just by looking at them normally. But emotionally, you can almost read that one in somebody's face. I mean, we can fake it only so far. And you can tell people have emotional problems. And I think our heart goes out to that group maybe more than any other. But what about our concerns regarding those in spiritual danger? That's the one I think that we need a lot of attention to. I've been teaching on discipling in recent lessons in several different places. But I'll say this, I don't think we're as committed to helping each other grow spiritually after conversion as we once were. That's an understatement, actually. But it's odd that the religious world, the evangelical world especially, they, they're writing so many books. They use the word discipling and discipleship so commonly now and describe it like we used to describe it. And we've gotten weird about it, some of us. We need to get, get, need to get over weirdness. Stuff happens. People get hurt. Things don't go well. Whether you're talking about marriage or anything else. But you have to get over it, right? You don't stay married 53 years like I have without getting over a lot of stuff. <laughs> and whatever I've gotten over, my wife has gotten over 10 times that amount having to put up with me. It's the truth. And those of you who know me well, you know good and well it's the truth. But... We need help from other people to grow spiritually. And then how about our evangelistic zeal to seek and to save the lost? That's what Jesus came to do. How about that? 
Why are we not as motivated to help people spiritually as we often are to help them physically and emotionally? You see, that's where it comes down not just to what feels natural, but it comes down to what does the Bible say about the matter. When I first got around this movement, that we call a discipling movement back in the day, when I first got around it, I was floored with a baptism rate. I mean, people would go and plant a campus ministry in a dead church. And they would still have 100 people baptized sometimes the first year in the campus ministry. And and, and churches, there were so many that would have at least 100 baptisms or more a year. Not big churches even. But churches that were small trying to get big. But they were focused on helping people get saved. Somebody asked me soon after I got around that kind of campus ministry days movement, they said, how do they baptize so many people? I said, well, as best I can tell, evangelism is their major focus. And somehow they've got an accountability uh, system that seems to work and keep everybody focused on that. And I think I was pretty right in describing that. It didn't take long to figure that one out. It isn't rocket science. Uh, Things don't happen without purpose and without focus and all of that. And yet, I see us back then. I know what I burned bridges to get into back then. And I know kind of where we are now. And I'm concerned. I'm probably alarmed. I think about the growth rates in our movement of churches. We're in a big church. A lot of us are not aware of what's going on around the world. We don't really know. And I think we need to know. I think we are disciples of Jesus. We need to know what is going on in our family of churches. So I share things like this. 70% of our churches, some of them have been around a long time, have under 100 members. It now takes 85 members to baptize one person in a year. Over half our churches baptized 10 or less people in 2016. That's the last year I've got statistics. 111 of our churches had zero baptisms in 2016. Our growth rate as a movement continues to decrease. 1.9% as a movement. Wasn't that good in the U.S., but as a movement in 2015. Dropped to 1.2 in 2016. That's about a 60% decrease if I'm... Uh, doing that right. I haven't seen 2017 statistics, but my guess is we're probably uh, about zeroed out. That would be my guess. I hope I'm wrong on that. I may be. I'm just saying, looking at the last several years, that's the direction we're headed. I used to be a part of the mainline churches of Christ. I left there on purpose for some reasons. The main reason is I wanted to be a part of something that was making a tremendous impact on the world and on eternity. But I see their statistics. They put it out every year. And they don't just put out how many thousands of people have left their fellowship. They talk about how many congregations have ceased to exist. So I've been watching that one now for decades. I know how it works. God's going to have to help us get out of this one. I was in Orlando during the week. I'm a part of a diversity committee uh, in our movement of churches and we made a presentation to some elders, evangelists, and teachers 
and talked about diversity and what would happen if we really tapped into diversity, uh, I think we could do something about church growth. When my Bible tells me in Ephesians chapter 3 that the mystery of Christ is the joining together of Jew and Gentile, two groups who hated one another, joined them together in one body, and that was the mystery of Christ, it's not hard to figure out in America at least what would be the two most diverse groups to put together besides black and white. Uh, I think there are some answers right there with some of our growth issues. But that's another sermon and it wasn't even supposed to be in this one. So no extra charge on that one. What are we missing? What are we missing? When you look at the growth rate, what are we missing? I think it's the priority issue. You see, the priority for Jesus and His ministry was not the emotional issues that people faced. Now, He addressed them. If we just did what the Sermon on the Mount is, would be healthier, right? He'd definitely in the Bible addressed emotional ways to get help and to be more normal. Whatever normal is. I would have no idea, but whatever it is. Uh, God wants to help us that way. But emotional issues never get completely fixed. And in the end, even if they did, guess what? You're going to die. And so I know without any question, when it comes to the emotional health, I'm going to die unfixed. I'm better than I used to be. I've read a lot of books. I've gotten a lot of counsel, a lot of discipling. I've tried to get more fixed. And I'm better than I used to be. But when I die, you, all you can say, well, there went old fur. You, you know, he kicked out of here. He wasn't fixed yet. <laughs> That's not the big issue of whether I'm fixed emotionally. On the other hand, you know, uh, his priority was not the physical things. Even stop and think of what Jesus could have done and didn't do. What could he have taught people about health? Some of us are obsessed with health physically. Well, maybe that extends your life a few years. God bless you, but you're going to die. I was at the doctor recently. My wife was seeing my doctor. Hers couldn't see her. And he's just talking matter-of-factly. Well, we treat certain things based on life expectancy and how your health is. And he said, uh, for men, your life expectancy is 75 point something. And for women, it's 80 point something. I thought, good grief. I'm 75 point something now. And I went and looked it up, and I looked at it by state. I found one of these graphs by state in Texas. That young Vietnamese guy I've got for a doctor, he's a sharp cookie. 75 point something for men in Texas and 80 point something for women in Texas. Now, if you're already older, that does extend what they'll give you. They actually will predict I might live another 10 years. I doubt it, but I might. It's okay if I do, but I am going to die, and so are you. And you young bucks over there who think you're going to live for so long. You, if you're lucky, you're going to be 75 years, and it won't take you long to get there. You better trust us old guys. We've been there. I can tell you all about my junior high days. And when I met Blaze's grandmother, 
I can tell you all about that. I remember it quite well. I could talk for hours and hours and hours from the time I was two years old. I've got a lot of memories back there. I can't remember my zip code, but I know a lot of things from the past. <laughs> kind of true some days, honestly. But guys, Jesus didn't give a lot of health advice. And I, I, I try to eat healthy. My wife definitely does. She keeps me on the straight and narrow except when I get off the path. But uh, it might extend you a few years, but it's not going to extend you beyond that. The real issue, guys, and all the people Jesus healed, they all died. All the people He raised from the dead, they died again. They had to die twice. Go through it twice. We only got to go through it once. But it's going to end up like that. So what really matters is getting people right with God spiritually. That's all that ultimately really matters, right? And we got to have an understanding of the reason for the priority that Jesus had in getting people ready to meet God. They were lost. People are lost. That's an eternal issue. And that one should get most of our attention. Here's what the Bible says. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then you... Get around to what Jesus said in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he's speaking to a bunch of Jews and saying, if you don't become Christians, you will go to hell. In spite of your history as God's nation, you will be lost. And the apostles believed what Jesus said. Because in Acts 4... They said salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, I can look at that and I can think, gee, that's tough. Well, it is. But I can't reject what Jesus said there and accept what he says about giving the abundant life or uh, I'm meek and lowly, follow me and you'll find rest for your souls or any of those other promises we like. I can't accept one if I'm not going to accept it all because he said it. All spiritual roads don't lead to heaven. One religion is not as good as another. There is only one that will get you to heaven and it is called Christianity the way the Bible describes it. And we just got to see it. Do I like that? Do I like to think that? No. It's disturbing to me. But the Bible says it, and I believe it. And we've got to believe it. And it's not enough just even to get the right religion. We've got in this country what I call the American dream and then the American church dream. And the only difference between the two is You manage to go to church every now and then and you have some spiritual stuff going on a little so that you have some fire insurance for when you die. That's the way a lot of people look at religion. 
They want to have everything else that everybody else does, all the materialism, all the self-focus, all of those things, but they don't want to go to hell, so they have enough religion, they hope, that will get them in when they die. It's not going to get them in if the Bible's true. And those are the facts, guys. It's quiet in here when you start on that. Some of us don't like that, but if I'm not going to believe what Jesus said on this point, then why would I believe any of the rest of it? I just go fishing. Nice weather. Bass are starting to spawn. Good time to fish. If I didn't really believe this, I'd be out there right now on a Sunday. So the very first step of Christianity is to deny self, take up our crosses, and follow Him. So the conclusion, I want to love people as Jesus loved people. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He loved the whole person. I want to love the whole person. I think I do. I care about people. I want to help, and I'm going to help them in every way that I can. But... I'm going to have the same priority that Jesus did, and that is helping people get right with God above all else. You know, I've shared my faith more this year than I probably have in a two and a half month period for a long time because I have been thinking about this. I have been praying about this. And I found myself, I've got all kind of cards, business cards, shirt cards, all that. I find myself sharing. I don't have a problem generally sharing with people. I share with a lot of people. But I give them a card and, you know, uh, we do this, we do that. Here's where we meet, etc. And and a lot of times I've been just letting them go. You know, not many of those people call back. And so I said, Gordon, you learned a long time ago when you first started off on this walk, you learned... Get their number and their name and call them. I've got stories that are amazing about people that were called for months and months and months and months and months and finally came to something and they ended up becoming disciples. Some of you probably like that. Stubborn, hard-headed people. Yeah, I I got a hand up in the back. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's funny. I haven't asked anybody for a name and number recently that said no. I mean, if I got them in a conversation, I got, I got one on the way to Orlando. I got another one coming back from Orlando who lives in Orlando. So Marshall Mead loves me right now because I'm, I'm sending him names and numbers. Uh, it, it's easy to ask. And then you try to get them to something and call them and do something about it. Guys, people are lost. People need desperately to be saved. And we're not going to do that, I don't think, unless we believe what Jesus believed about the judgment day and heaven and hell. We need a healthy dose of motivation, don't we? We need to believe what Jesus believed and we need to do what Jesus did. I saw in the paper this morning that somebody in Pennsylvania bought the winning lottery ticket for a $455 million lottery. What if someone in our group of churches won that? And they said, okay, here's the deal. Everyone in the International Churches of Christ that brings someone to Jesus, they get $50,000. You think more would get saved that way? Does the Almighty Dollar mean more to us than the Almighty God? 
That's a big question, right? So this is a serious sermon. I try to make you laugh a few times. But honestly, we should be crying over the sad shape of the world that we live in. I don't care what kind of house people live in and how nice it is and how glitzy and what kind of cars they drive and they look like they've got it all together. If they're not right with God, they're going to meet Him unprepared. And our job, if we are the fullness of Jesus, our job is to help people know God. Amen.